Good morning, I'm Robin Shannon. On today's Fordham Conversations, I'm talking to Fordham University instructor Stephanie Woto, a PhD candidate who was one of the principal investigators of a new study that highlights the role of homelessness in human trafficking. Good morning, Stephanie. Good morning, Robin. So can you describe your study? Absolutely. Our study had two main objectives. The first point of the study was to develop a tool that would allow us to screen for human trafficking victimization as it's defined by U.S. law, and then to use that tool to achieve our second objective, which was to get a prevalence statistic for uh, what human trafficking looks like and what the numbers look like in terms of our own homeless and runaway youth population here in New York City. So describe the different types of human trafficking. Human trafficking can be characterized as sex trafficking or labor trafficking primarily. Uh, Sex trafficking is a little bit trickier. Uh, Sex trafficking requires there to be some element of force, fraud, or coercion in order for it to qualify as trafficking. If you don't have that force, fraud, and coercion, it would not be considered trafficking. You would consider that survival sex, right? And that's when you are essentially just trading sex acts for something of value, like a place to sleep, for example. However, if you are under 18 years of age, you don't need to have that element of force, fraud, or coercion for it to qualify as sex trafficking. If you're 17 years old and you're engaging in commercial sexual activity, you are considered a victim of trafficking. When you're talking about sex trafficking, give me an example or give me a scenario of what would be a sex trafficking victim or a labor trafficking victim. Sure. So an example, uh, in one of the participants whom we interviewed for this study, there was a young girl who was about five years old when her mother told her they were going to be playing dress up, brought her into her bedroom, and had a male friend uh, rape her daughter in exchange for money. You know, that was clearly, not only was she under the age of 18, but there was also an element of force in that example. Labor trafficking, on the other hand, we're looking for some kind of recruitment or harboring of someone for their labor services through the use of force, fraud, or coercion, again, for the purpose of, you know, servitude, um, debt bondage, slavery, etc. So an example there might be uh, we had one young man who was forced by his father to drug run, and he had no choice in the matter in order for his father to allow him to you know, use the house and sleep there and and be under his care, he had to do this drug running for his dad. So there are examples of boys and men who are also victims of trafficking. Absolutely. From a legal standpoint, is it important to differentiate between prostitution and human trafficking? It is, because as I said, we're looking for that element of force, fraud, and coercion for it to be considered trafficking unless you are under 18 years of age, in which case you don't need to have that present. Prostitution, a lot of the young people we spoke with were victims or did practice survival sex, which is a more, I guess, politically correct way of, you know, of looking at prostitution, right? Here we are exchanging something of value for sexual activity to survive, essentially. A lot of the kids said, you know, I... I, don't have a place to live. It's it's scary sleeping on the streets of New York City. You don't know where your next meal is going to come from. You know, and, and pimps know this. And so when they approach you, they are anticipating that you have no choice but to subject yourself to. Where did you find the participants who were part of your study, who you spoke to about your study? We had actually, at the, at the time of the study, I was working at Covenant House, New York, 
which is um, a homeless and runaway youth shelter here in the west side of New York City. We had actually interviewed about 185 young people who were staying at Covenant House, who were residents at Covenant House. And at the time of the study, uh, what we did was we took a random sample, which means they were of unknown trafficking status. They were just residents who were staying at the homeless shelter. And we had administered our uh, trafficking measure that we developed, our tool, an interview in plain language, which helped us determine how many of them had been victims of trafficking and how many had not. So how did you break it down to know what type of trafficking these people were victims of? So that that gets more into the structure of the measure itself. So, and again, when I say measure, I mean just a a sort of structured interview. So the way that the, the interview was structured was that we had four different constructs or domains that we were looking to tap into to see if these were essentially indicators of human trafficking. The first section was about immigration and migration status. So for example, did you arrange your own travel to the United States? Were you promised something when you got here? Did you have to, did your parents have to give something in order for you to get here? The second domain or category was um, coercion. So psychological or financial coercion, right? So have you ever worked in a place that made you feel scared or unsafe? Have you ever felt that you were being tricked or forced into doing some kind of work you didn't want to do? Questions like that. The third was control. And this is the idea that most traffickers know that they have to control the the lives and surroundings of their, their uh, victims in order to get what they want out of them. So people who were not allowed to contact family and friends, were you asked to lie about the kind of work you in, were involved with? Did someone ever, you know, control the money that you earned or take the money in exchange for something like food or rent, et cetera? And then the fourth area or domain of the of the interview is sexual exploitation, which basically flat out inquires whether or not the person had been engaged in commercial sexual activity. Now, how forthright were these um, young people at Covenant House? I can't imagine that they were comfortable talking about this particular, you know, aspect of their life. So was it easy to get the interviews? Were some people, you know, a little more apprehensive? You're absolutely right, Robin. A lot of the, the young people were very hesitant to disclose their experiences Um, which is why early on we realized that we had to phrase the questions very sensitively so that the young people did not feel that they were under attack. We wanted to not only ensure their confidentiality, but make sure they understood that their services here at Covenant House were not going to be affected by the answers to these questions. And it it wasn't easy. A lot of times, especially um, APA guidelines as a research psychologist, for example, if you hear that a child is endangered, you're required by law to report it. So there was a lot of gray area in in trying to meet, you know, walk those lines. So, Stephanie, what was one of the more surprising answers you might have gotten from your interviews with these victims? For me personally, one of the most surprising um, findings that we got from this study was that 48 percent, almost half of the people we interviewed said that lack of a place to sleep was the number one reason that they had even entered into prostitution or commercial sexual activity, which tells me that there's a very strong link between homelessness and human trafficking. A lot of our government officials and politicians like to talk about trafficking and how important it is. And while they're pouring funding into trafficking legislation and things like that, they are also cutting funding for homeless shelters and things like that. What this study really showed 
And what I found most interesting was that there is an explicit link between homelessness and trafficking activity. So give me an example, if you could, of someone's um, living situation, and then they ended up homeless, like then then they would end up on the streets or at Covenant House? Absolutely. So a, a pretty good example would be someone who was a transgender or a homosexual. Four out of four of the young people who we interviewed who were identified or self-identified as transgender had said that they... Um, entered commercial sexual activity after being after leaving home and having no place to go. So a lot of times people or young people find themselves leaving home because of different situations, whether it was my parents don't accept me or, you know, I, I don't have a lot of parental guidance at home. And when they arrive in a place like New York City, they really have no place to go. And if they if, if all the homeless shelters are full and they don't have any information about where to get the services they need, Pimps know that, and they they target those vulnerable youth. And when someone approaches you and says, "Hey, you know, you don't really have, you know, a resume to get a job. Let me take care of you. Let me buy you a new pair of sneakers, or let me, you know, take you to a diner for a nice hamburger, you know, and I'll be your friend." When that person suddenly fills that void in in terms of affection and being cared for, you know, you're you're likely to sort of find yourself in a position where you're going to be going with them and and doing what they say. And a lot of times, I mean, I would say a majority of the girls I spoke to referred to their pimps as their boyfriends. So it's in a way that this pimp actually convinces you that he cares about you and that he only cares about you. You're his mate. And in actuality, he's just trying to manipulate you into using you to put you on the streets or to have you sleep with other people and then give him the money. Is that correct? That's exactly right. And you'll see that with a lot of people who never really had that Uh, attention or love coming from a a home that was characterized by love and affection and attention. You know, the first person who does pay attention to you is likely to really, you know, sweep you off your feet. So, Stephanie, do you have an example of the type of person who would be coerced into a commercial sex act? Using a more statistical perspective, uh, there were certainly risk factors that we observed, one of which being just homelessness in general, prior sexual abuse, uh, coming from uh, a background or a home where there was a lack of, you know, supportive care, a uh, lack of education was certainly another one. And pimps and traffickers, they specifically look uh, to recruit youth with these with these risk factors. In your study, Stephanie, did you include Covenant House residents who were over 18 at all? We did not. This was a study that was um, operated using the Fordham University IRB. And they are the uh, sort of ethics police at any research institution to make sure that the study is, you know, in line with with good ethics. And so we did not interview people who were younger than 18 years of age. It should be noted that a lot of uh, a lot of studies have reported that the average age into prostitution is somewhere or into trafficking is somewhere between 12 and 14 years old. Even if that is true, I was overwhelmed by the amount of people over the 18 years of age who had actually had similar experiences. Because I would think that if you were 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, and you were living this particular lifestyle, you don't, or a victim of this particular lifestyle, you don't then turn around at 18 and get a job and, you know, have a wife and two kids um, or a husband and two kids. So, So if a victim is forced into this lifestyle when he or she is young, then what stops them from leaving once they become an adult? 
from a psychological perspective, you can imagine that if you learn at a young age that this is how you make money, right? Uh, people in my neighborhood who go to school and who get jobs, you know, end up working, you know, long hours for not very big paychecks and don't really move up in life. However, you know, the people I meet that engage in these sort of activities, whether it be prostitution or tra other trafficking activities, they're making more money. They are being provided for by their traffickers. And you can imagine as a young person finding yourself in a situation where it makes more sense to keep doing what you're doing, but what you know how to do, what you're good at doing. It's the life you've known. That's why uh, people who are involved in this field refer to anyone who's had trafficking experiences uh, as having been in the life, in quotes. Uh, it, it is a life. It's a lifestyle. It's something that you are conditioned, conditioned maybe? to it. Yeah, absolutely. Then that's something you just it's just how you how you do things. Yeah, it sounds similar to people who um, have been incarcerated at a young age and continue to become incarcerated even when they get out because they just don't know any other lifestyle. They just really don't know even how to get out of it. And sometimes, and I'm not saying that in this case of victims of human trafficking, but sometimes someone in prison might not even want to get out just because it's familiar. You know, they, they that old quote, the devil you know, Absolutely. sometimes it's a little easier to go with what you know. Right. Um, again, not to, to say at all that, that people want to be in the situation of human trafficking, but... No, but the um, recidivism example is an excellent example with regard to, to crime. We... what. One of the things that makes this research and this field so frustrating is that you can find yourself in a position where you are ready and are able to really help a child and help a young person perhaps prosecute their trafficker in a court of law. And by the time, you know, you go through all the steps it takes to get there, the child, you know, or the young person can be can be gone. They're back on the streets. They don't have an address. They don't have a cell phone. There's no way to get in touch with them. You know, they miss their grand jury indictment and that's it. Stephanie, are there examples of people or children who might be afraid even to testify against their pimp or someone who has trafficked them in because there's the possibility that this person might hurt me if I'm if they can manipulate me when I'm not in the system, then there's a chance that mentally they can manipulate me to a place where I might not even want to tell what they've done to me or want to tell that they've taken me from from one place and are using me in another. Right. And that's very true. A lot of the uh, I shouldn't say a lot, but many of the young people that I spoke with or interviewed in the study uh, did say that they had been afraid to leave or quit their work situation, whatever it be, due to fears of violence or threats of harm, you know, to themselves, to their family members, to friends, etc. This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. I'm Robin Shannon talking with Stephanie Voto, a Ph.D. candidate and Fordham University instructor who's recently done a study on homelessness and human trafficking. Stephanie, what type of obstacles did you face when you were talking to these victims? Anything that was really challenging for you? Yeah, I mean, the primary challenge that I faced was that I wanted so badly to help the young people get their lives back. And I realized that I couldn't do that in the way I wanted to. There were a couple of times when I had wanted to, you know, where the, the beds were full and a kid had no place to go. And I was, you know, we were ready to give our apartment keys out to people. And, you know, you realize that you just can't do that. You can't, 
give every kid, you know, recommend him to someone you know for an internship because chances are they're just not going to show. Uh, it's it's hard because I, I want to be able to help them personally, but I have to do so in a way that I'm able to use the services and equipment that are available to me and use those resources, you know, in a effective and legal way, uh, which, you know, is oftentimes not enough, but it's what we have right now. So we do what we can. Is the problem of human trafficking hard to track? Absolutely. It is a very covert activity uh, as opposed to other types of crimes and social injustices that are much more overt. Uh, trafficking is something that, you know, as you can even tell with these sort of subtle differences between definitions of sex trafficking and survival sex and commercial sex, etc., there are a lot of sort of nuances that make it very difficult to really uh, filter trafficking from everything else. And as you can imagine, traffickers do everything in their power to sort of conceal this activity, whether it be using, um, you know, control, exerting control over their trafficked victims, uh, you know, making sure that they, you know, they, they take their cell phones away from them. Uh, they make sure that they're not allowed to visit their families unless they have their permission and supervision. You know, they, they find lots of ways to control also uh, through debt bondage or through holding their money. Right. So uh, keeping their money and then repaying them in other ways, like saying, well, you know, I give you a place to sleep and I, you know, I bought you dinner for the last three weeks and, you know, I bought you these nice clothes, these nice new clothes, you know, so in, in essence, you're in debt to me. These are the ways that traffickers are able to control their victims and it, it makes it very hard for the trafficker to get caught. Stephanie, your study focused on homelessness and human trafficking. So when you were doing the research and developing a way to measure this, did you find other studies or other methods that were similar to yours? No. In fact, uh, we were actually the first study of its kind here in New York State. So so wh why? <laughs> why? Well, this sort of brings us back to our objective, right? I talked about the, the task force out of the mayor's office dealing to, to sort of combat and deal with this issue. There was no starting point. There's no way to tell how many people are victims of human trafficking if you have no way to actually measure that information. In developing the tool that we used, uh, the HTIM, we call it Human Trafficking IM-10, we uh, have these sort of 10 questions that are uh, scientifically validated as indicators of trafficking activity. So for example, you get a score you know, of 10 on my measure. You know, I can be fairly certain that you have, you are under US law, you are a victim of human trafficking. And the reason that we need a study to, or a questionnaire that's sensitively phrased to tell us this as opposed to just a back and forth question session is because a lot of times if you confront a young person directly and ask them questions relating to their trafficking status, they're going to shut down. Uh, we found this in our own study when we used the uh, intake data. We had people who work in the intake office at Covenant House give us information about what that first interview looked like, what it was like when they sat down with that young person and asked them questions about what led them here to Covenant House. And we compared their answers to those questions to the answers they gave during our structured interview using our measure. And they were actually very different. A lot of young people who were afraid to say early on to what extent they were involved with, you know, commercial sexual activity, for example, were then a little bit, you know, less reluctant to answer our questions when we had the measure, which was, again, very sensitively phrased, um, making sure that we don't have any accusatory statements, uh, making it clear to the young person that 
you know, we understood that they were in a tough situation. We understood that it was tough for young people who didn't have a job or a place to stay to get by. And then knowing that, to go ahead and answer our questions full well knowing that none of their answers were going to be uh, affecting their stay here at the homeless shelter or, you know, uh, other sort of legal actions that might be taken against them. So, Stephanie, why were you the first? Is there any reason that you can think of that this type of study hasn't been done before? Several studies in recent months and years have actually attempted to do what we did and to get a prevalent statistic. Unfortunately, as it goes here in this great city of ours, uh, politics and other uh, priorities got in the way. Uh, For example, a number of studies that attempted to do this had their uh, research methods and their uh, statistical sort of soundness questioned or challenged by uh, third parties who had interest in other areas. In the example I just referenced, the owners of uh, Backpage.com, which was a very uh, popular online sort of like Craigslist uh, website where you could post an ad selling yourself. The, The people who own that website who were making a lot of money by allowing that sort of trafficking activity to happen on their websites were owned by a company, a popular newspaper here in New York, The Village Voice, who were publishing articles that were refuting and challenging the studies done by other people about trafficking. They were trying to say, hey, listen, the prevalence of trafficking is just not that high. You guys have not psychometrically sound uh, studies being conducted. And so it's not fair to say that the prevalence is really that high when it's not. In hopes of protecting their own webpage, backpage.com, which was bringing in lots of revenue. So you're saying there were the powers that be had the influence to sort of try to negate some of the studies that were done prior to yours on human trafficking? Exactly. Okay. And also, it's important to remember that, as I said, because of the covert nature of human trafficking activity, it is a difficult thing to study and a difficult thing to really precisely measure. So, Stephanie, did you come up with any opposition? while you were trying to do your study? So far, we have not encountered any opposition uh, or challenges to our study. We released findings that uh, 23% of our entire sample had experienced uh, some sort of commercial sexual activity, right? So trafficking and survival sex. Stephanie, how do you think trafficking and commercial sex acts can be stopped or at least deterred, in your opinion? Well, one of the things I find really interesting is that many of the laws we have in place right now do not really attack the Johns, as we as we call them, the, the clients. Uh, there, there probably needs to be a surge in um, attention-focused research policy writing with regard to the consumer of this horrendous product. In terms of policy, there are certainly some changes that can be made. There really is this very strong link between homelessness and trafficking experience. And if we can make sure that we never, you know, every time you go to cut homeless shelter funding, you really are, in a sense, affecting the likelihood that trafficking activity will occur. If the issue of human trafficking is so covert, is there a way to reach the victims who are unlikely to come in contact with uh, social service agencies like Covenant House? That's a tricky question. Uh, There are a few things at play there. The first is that, obviously, with increasing awareness of the issue, people will be less inclined. It will become less stigmatized, and people will be more inclined to self-identify, and certainly education helps as well, right? 
um, on top, aside from that, by increasing funding to allow for more for services that specifically tend to the needs of trafficking victims, trafficking victims may be more inclined to come out uh, if if they know that they're you know if if the laws are written in a way that people feel that you know their immigration status is going to be uh, jeopardized or if they feel that you know they're going to be uh, prosecuted for you know say prostitution if they if they come forward they're not going to come forward but if their laws are written in such a way that they know that they're seen as a victim and that services will be made available to them to target their specific needs which I should mention are different than the needs of other people involved in uh, in related areas they you know they, they do have their own specific needs that need to be met specific like you know psych like counseling etc uh, and so if they know those services are made available to them they are probably going to be more inclined to surface. Yeah, because you're talking about pe- people who were victimized at, you know, 11, 12, 12 through 14. So th- obviously there are going to be some psychological issues there that are needed. Basic, uh, if you say that there is an issue of um, human trafficking and homelessness, then there's going to need, they're going to possibly need places to stay, uh, job training, I would think, something along those lines. Yes, is job training is a that? big thing. So Stephanie, um, how do you recommend your study be used? Well, the first thing that I hope it does is that it, it shows people that trafficking is not something that's happening, you know, across international Russian borders uh, with young children. It's something that's happening right here in our own city uh, with people that we probably see on the streets every single day. Uh, essentially, you know, if you have if you see a young person who is without a place to sleep, chances are that they have at some point in their life or will engage in some sort of survival sex or trafficking activity. Another way I hope it's used is that I hope people feel that they can use this measure. Uh, we, The point of research is dissemination, right? And we hope that now that the measure has been made public, people will use it in their own social service agencies and different you know, NGOs and other community organizations here in New York and certainly outside of New York as well uh, to help not only screen for trafficking victimization, but also to help trafficking victims reveal themselves so we have more accurate prevalence estimates. Stephanie, once a trafficking victim is identified, what's the next step? It depends where you are. Different social service agencies have different protocols in place. Unfortunately, many of them have no protocol in place. Uh, so with human trafficking, you know, continually emerging as a very hot topic uh, in our culture and in the media, hopefully uh, that will change. Certainly at Covenant House, uh, since the study, there have been some changes made to put in place uh, a protocol for what to do next. Young people will have hopefully soon the option to go to the legal uh, advocacy center where they can actually take steps to prosecute their traffickers. We also they also uh, have an advocacy program where young people who were victims of trafficking can actually uh, accompany us when we go to Albany to lobby, you know, for different state legislature like the Safe Harbor Act, where uh, we, you know, like to have young people who have been in the life actually telling these lawmakers their personal stories. And finally, most importantly, is to have in place uh, the social services that need to be made available to them to help them, you know, heal and move forward with their lives, whether that be psychological counseling or, you know, vocational training and things like that, education, et cetera. And you mentioned the Safe Harbor Act. What is that? The Safe Harbor for Exploited Children Act essentially creates a continuum of services that would be made available to New York's sexually exploited uh, children. Under New York law, 
if you're under the age of 17, uh, you again, you cannot consent to sex. Uh, but kids as young as 11 and 12 are, you know, charged uh, for prostitution. And so they're seeking to change that so that young people are seen as victims rather than criminals. So what you're saying is there's a age limit to when you're considered a victim and when you're considered a prostitute, so to speak. Is that accurate? That's correct. And our perspective is that as you, you know, continue along your developmental trajectory, just because you turn 18 doesn't suddenly change everything. Uh, whether you were subject to sexual exploitation at 17 or 16 or 18, our perspective is that on your 18th birthday, nothing has changed. You're in the same position you were last year when you were recruited into this or five years ago when you began the life. So, uh, Stephanie, is there anything that you want to add that I haven't asked? I just really want to sort of underscore this take-home message that there is this very important link between homelessness and uh, commercial sexual activity. Homelessness oftentimes occurs uh, after the age of 18 when young people are either signing themselves out of foster homes or being kicked out of family homes. And so, you know, it's a really vulnerable age. And so by extending homelessness services to people who are even older than 18 years of age, uh, we're really doing a lot to work in the fight against trafficking. Thank you, Stephanie. Thank you, Robin. After my interview with Stephanie, I contacted the Village Voice. I wanted to give them a chance to comment about her allegations. Their lawyer sent a response that read, Village Voice and its corporate parent, Voice Media Group, have no control or affiliation with Backpage. In 2012, VMG purchased newspapers and websites from Village Voice Media Holdings, owner of Backpage.com. I then reached out to counsel for Backpage, Liz McDougall. I have yet to receive a response. I'd like to thank Stephanie for coming in and my producer, Alan Candlick. Stay with us, George Bodarki and Cityscaper next. For Fordham Conversations, I'm Robin Shannon.